This talk this evening is the continuation of the talk I began the other evening about the framework or foundation of our spiritual life, how to cultivate a spiritual life consciously so that we understand and we have faith in our ability to really come to the end of suffering, to uproot and to um, weaken first and then uproot all greed, hatred, and delusion in the mind stream, in the heart stream. So I talked the other evening about generosity as part of the framework, about paying careful attention to our speech and behavior. This is about sila. These allow the mind and heart to go towards wisdom, to develop liberating wisdom, to understand how to live in this life skillfully, helping others, and at the same time, purifying our own karmic stream, helping ourselves, and eventually leading to complete liberation, what the Buddha called the sure heart's release. So I'd like to read to you, uh, repeat to you the Buddha's words this is about the sure heart's release in that particular sutta. So this holy life, bhikkhus, those who are practicing like us, does not have gain and honor and renown for its benefit or the attainment of virtue for its benefit or the attainment of concentration for its benefit or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable deliverance of mind and heart, the sure heart's release, that is the goal of this holy life, its heartwood and its end. So this talk is meant to help you understand not just the moment-to-moment -moment view or the various uh, foundations of the path, but also to understand the long-range view, where this journey is taking us, to make it possible to see beyond whatever goals you have for yourself now, and keep open to how it may change. Because if we keep so, any view of how we think we should open, or what we're opening to, we really limit ourselves to make it possible to see that the goals of loving-kindness, to being virtuous, to develop concentration, to be more knowledgeable as a spiritual meditator, these are all worthy of our efforts. That's all beautiful. But to stay open to far-reaching possibilities, The Buddha reminds us, not just in this passage, but in other passages, that all these virtuous qualities that we can have on the path are indeed qualities which we must develop and practice, but they're not the highest aspiration of the path. They're not something that we should feel we, when we've completed that or we feel we're good enough that we've come to the end of our journey. I just want to review a little bit. I talked last time about the three pillars of the Dharma, or the Dhamma, which one of our teachers, Manindraji, pointed out. I spoke in the beginning about the practice of living with a generous heart, about the practice of generosity. I spoke about living in harmony, the practice of sila, paying careful attention to our speech and our behavior so that we not only refrain from harming others, but we don't harm ourselves by doing this. We don't harm our karmic stream by doing this. So we all know that doing these practices gives us a great sense of happiness, a great sense of faith 
and confidence in ourselves. We have an inviolable sense of well-being when we practice in these ways, and this is really important on the path of practice. It allows the inner world to relax, to feel an inner sense of safety. In our lives, it's important to create safety around us, to be able to feel safe in our environment, among the people we work and live with. And I think oftentimes, when I look into myself in my life and how I've tried to lead my life and see around me how it is, there's not as much attention to how to create an inner field of safety, how we can feel safe within ourselves so that we feel a sense of confidence that we can live our lives without self-blame, without guilt, without feeling that we're inadequate. And so these practices really give us a powerful sense of faith in ourselves to navigate this outer world, which is really full of danger and unsafety, as well as beauty. When we have this powerful sense of faith in our own ability to navigate not just the outer terrain, but the inner terrain, we're not caught so much in doubt about ourselves or about the path we're on, or we're less likely to be caught in doubt. It allows us to go beyond that limited sense of self that we often find ourselves in, especially on the spiritual path. It allows us to get a glimpse of what the possibilities are for us, the far shore, the farther horizon of our spiritual path. We have the capacity to experience a happiness and peace that's not dependent on whether things around us are in the way we think they should be. We have this inherent capacity to develop a deep peace in ourselves, even when the world around us is not at peace and things aren't going in, in a way that suits us. And so this is uh, when we really develop the path of living carefully with our speech and behavior, living with a generous heart. We live in a way that we pay attention, careful attention to the world and how we're interacting with the world and do our best to serve and help and benefit everything we can do. No limit to that either. But our true happiness is not conditioned upon anything in this world, that we come to see that really our deepest goal is to experience the unconditioned, that unconditioned state within us that's possible when we're not having any limitations, when we keep an open sight of the path. So I want to go beyond the understanding of Dana, beyond the understanding of Sila, yet still include those two in my life. In that way, we're more able to practice the third pillar of the Dharma, which is bhavana. So there's Dana, Sila, and the last one is bhavana. It's the development of the mind and heart. It means bringing forth what has not yet been developed. In the West, mental development usually means acquiring something, acquiring knowledge, even if it's spiritual knowledge, learning and, of course, applying that in the world, which is all good. There's nothing wrong with that. In the meditative field, it could mean acquiring or having blissful states of mind, deep states of concentration. From the perspective of the teachings of the Buddha, mental development is also about understanding and developing, strengthening the capabilities which actually liberated, 
not just being in deep states of concentration, dis, uh, discovering and experiencing bliss, or wh- however one might put it, From the teachings of the Buddha, mental development is also about liberating the mind and heart from deeply rooted patterns of greed and hatred and delusion. And of course we might think, well, then we become just a blob in life. You know, we can't really do anything well. We just maybe become kind of like a doormat in life. But this isn't true at all, of course. We become more able to see things clearly, to act skillfully, to benefit the world with our being. So it's the eventual uprooting of greed, hatred, and delusion, totally. So bhavana, or this mental development, mental heart development, has two parts to it. There are two areas of cultivation. The first area has to do with samatha, or concentration, which by itself leads to deep calmness and tranquility. This happens because of the seclusion from the hindrances. And this prepares the mind in stability in clarity, in strength. I like the rain. (laughs) It makes me stop. concentration has a lot of strength and the strength is really important in the practice of vipassana this strength helps to pierce through the illusion of uh, ignorance wrong understanding it makes the mind really serviceable but concentration wasn't isn't the end result of the Buddha's teaching. It's there to prepare the mind for vipassana. That is the practice that the Buddha gave for the development of wisdom. And this is a second area of bhavana, developing wisdom. This is the liberating insight, the transformative understanding that brings the mind and heart to a place of seeing life as it really is. It can't do that through concentration. It doesn't have the same um, trajectory as concentration. So I'd like to expand on the samatha practices and what they do. The concentration practices could be visualizations, could be any of the Brahma-viharas, metta, compassion, sympathetic joy or equanimity. There could be concentration on the sound, any sound, or concentration on the breath. When you bring your attention to the breath over and over again, this turns more into a concentration practice. It can. In concentration practices, the mental energy is repeatedly directed or focused towards a single object over and over again, or limited objects. Like in metta, they are perhaps the phrase, the various phrases, or the person, or the feeling of metta, but all around metta itself. So the mental energy is brought to that particular area over and over and over again without any break. 
And whenever the attention falls away from that area and goes to something else, whatever it goes to is ignored. And you bring it right back to wherever you have put your attention. It could be on kind of like an idea, the idea of nothingness or the idea of emptiness. And it could be directed towards that over and over again, whatever you think that is. That could also be a concentration practice. In time, the momentum of all that energized, focused attention becomes so strong that nothing else can come into that area. None of the defilements. The mind is not restless nor sleepy. There is no doubt in that time as a defilement. There is no attachment, no aversion. So during that time, one might think that one has kind of entered or uh, experienced enlightenment during that time. The force field is so strong that one feels so completely surrounded by a kind of bliss. Nothing else can enter. The mind is so fixated on whatever it's been paying attention to, whether it's a vision, a sound, an object, or an idea, it becomes totally absorbed in it. It happens through repetition through continuity on one or limited objects. And so this is what the Buddha called concentration. In this absorption, there's a feeling of extraordinary tranquility, extraordinary calm, because of the seclusion of all the hindrances, from all the hindrances. This, as I said, has often been mistaken for the end of the path. There's a prof profound sense that ex ordinary experiences are very far away. And it indeed feels like this is an extraordinary experience, which it is, of course. It's so enjoyable. It's a very refined mental seclusion. This was exalted and praised by the Buddha. But during that time of the Buddha's time, this was thought to be the pinnacle your spiritual experience, and this exists even today, that idea. This will last as long as one continues to do the practice, and the momentum of that concentration stays strong. But of course, it falls away in time. In our human lifetime, of course, we, we might experience it for moments, for hours, for several sittings, for sometimes for days. And it's said that there are uh, realms of existence where there are beings that can experience it for eons, for world cycles. But this is not the end of suffering. When people, when beings stop experiencing that, they open again to the pain in the body, the pain in the mind. All the hindrances rush back in again. Calm and tranquility dissolve. And depending on how weak or strong the practice has been, it gradually peters out. These are important factors in deepening the practice. Calm, tranquility, concentration, but by themselves they only provide a temporary freedom from the hindrances. One might feel one's own mind completely clean and clear, but it's not forever. This is an important experience though, because we begin to feel the possibility of complete liberation we begin to see, oh, it's possible for the mind to be free of any hindrance, of all hindrances. It's possible to really experience uh, the liberation that all the great beings have talked about.
this experience is what brings us back to practice. You know, it's, to me, it's like um, giving birth. You forget about the painful labor, and you just remember the beautiful times. So it's so easy to have another baby, you know. Um, it's like that with the, with the practice. We experience the beautiful times, and that's what brings us back over and over again to keep going with our practice. So that's the first part of bhavana, that's concentration. The second category of bhavana is the development of liberating insight or wisdom. And for that, we also need concentration, but not the same kind of concentration. We may develop that kind of concentration I just talked about, but then we bring that strength of mind to the vipassana practice. We transfer whatever clarity, strength of the concentration practice to our moment-to-moment -moment experience that we, uh, we experience in vipassana. Vipassana means seeing the true nature of phenomena as it really is, seeing life as it really is. Vipassana. We open to the moment-to-moment -moment view with extraordinary mindfulness, with a great deal, with strong concentration. It's not this everyday kind of ability to be present, to be mindful. And sometimes, you know, we develop a little extra ability to be mindful. But it takes more than that. It takes more than, some people come to practice because they just want to be more present. They want to live and we want to live in the present moment. And that's all good, but we really need more than that to be fully liberated if that's part of our vision in life. So this practice is called not just vipassana, but satipatthana vipassana. Sati means mindfulness. Pa means extraordinary. It's extra strength. And tana means on the object. So it's extra strength, mindfulness, on the object of meditation. This goes deeper than just being present in the moment. And when we develop mindfulness, like in retreat like this, we really try to give you a lot of support by the silence, by the inner seclusion. Even though we're with each other, we try to have as much seclusion as we can so we're pointed inwardly. And we really develop that kind of satipatthana, seeing things clearly through this moment-to-moment -moment strong awareness. We develop awareness on whatever the predominant object or experience is in the moment, on any one of the four foundations of mindfulness. And I want to point out that the Buddha didn't just talk about the breath. There was um, really an opening towards all the four foundations of mindfulness. Even in our particular lineage of Mahasi Sayadaw and who we learn from, uh, Upandita Sayadaw, Manindra, and several others. You begin with the breath, you can come back to the breath, but it's important to open to all the four foundations of mindfulness, whichever ones are predominant in the moment. It may be feelings or Vedana, the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feelings that arise. It could be the full range of uh, mental experiences, uh, you know, the, the mind of knowing and whatever it's colored by, joy, anger, etc. Or it could be any one of the mental objects that's kind of categorized as the, the five hindrances or the four noble truths or the seven factors of enlightenment, like that. It goes, the list of that goes on. But whatever is experienced of the four foundations of mindfulness, whichever one is most predominant in the present moment, the mindfulness takes as an object and 
sees the changing nature of that. Also, other objects arise and pass away. Everything that arises becomes the object of attention. It's not limited on a few things or on one single object, which is one of the basic differences between samatha and vipassana. So in vipassana, there are many different changing objects. And in samatha, there's one thing, one object or limited objects. In vipassana, mindfulness is repeatedly sent to whatever is occurring in the quickly fading moment. Concentration is being developed also in that way. It's a concentration, uh, the continuity of concentration on changing objects, not on one object, but on changing objects. So actually a very high degree of concentration can be developed on changing objects. And this is another basic difference between concentration, samatha, and vipassana. In vipassana, the attention is on changing objects. In samatha, the mind does not see change. And so one does not open in samatha to the true nature of experience. It opens to the true nature of experience through seeing the impermanent nature of all of life, the uh, unsatisfactory nature or dukkha of all of life, in, of every phenomena, and uh, the anatta or the not-self nature of all phenomena. It doesn't see that in concentration. It sees that. It realizes that in vipassana. The experience of vipassana is not one of great delight, not one of great comfort. When people have experienced concentration, we find it's very difficult for them to really change to opening to dukkha, to suffering that we open to in vipassana. There's a tendency to fall back to concentration all the time because it's so much more blissful there's so much more comfort there. And there's kind of like a, an unseen attachment to concentration practices. I'm just telling you like it is. It may not be good news, but that's how it happens. We're not absorbed for a long time. There's a certain amount of um, a sense of concentration, but we're not absorbed for a long time in vipassana. It's momentary, very momentary. Because the attention is always on changing objects, that is an important development. It, it sees change on ever-deepening levels. So of course, the subjective experience of vipassana can be one of chaos. <laughs> this is not fun you know, when we experience that. And people often wonder, why am I doing this if I have so much pain? Why, why shouldn't I just keep doing something that goes towards comfort all the time? And as Steve says, he may not have said it yet, but comfort is a goal not worthy of your sincerest uh, efforts. Liberation should be that goal. So the subjective experience of one who's going through this can be of chaos until deep equanimity is born out of just staying with changing objects over and over and over again. It takes a lot of equanimity just to stay with vipassana. And so at some point in the practice, this kind of equanimity is developed so that whatever arises and passes away doesn't phase the mind at all, doesn't cause any reaction in the mind at all. But during this time of chaos, one may think, my practice isn't very good. Everything is falling apart. And I'm not, I'm not good at this. I'm going to get up and leave. And we. 
a lot of us have, have seen that in our practice. There's two major times in the process, or what we call the progress of insight, where it's called the rolling up of the mat time. <laughs> you just figure you got to go. It's not, this is not worth it. And that's why it's really important to have someone who has been through it and can say, just keep going. You're really right on, right on in the path, and you have to just keep with it. Um, because you're really opening to something that's really important. It's important also to not judge oneself, because a lot of self-judging can come during this time of chaos. And it could last, depending on one's karma. It could last a while, you know, it could last for years. But during that time, a lot of uh, other factors are being developed that's really, that are really important. Calm, tranquility, investigation, uh, joyful interest, all of those seven factors, equanimity. This is an extraordinary experience when you open to kind of this chaotic understanding of what seems chaotic because mindfulness is revealing insight into the true nature of phenomena. The extraordinary facets of uh, the truth of life begin to emerge. So one of the facets that begins to emerge in each moment is it becomes clear to a yogi that there is the experience or the object of practice of meditation and there's the knowing of it, or the, you know, the mental knowing or mindfulness of it. And it becomes really, really clear that there's two different things happening. The sense of self, or you know, that I am my body, I am my, no my knowing, become sort of separate. And it's not that you know, we feel a separation of life. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying that there's a clarity that there is the object of experience and the knowing of it. And one begins to see clearly that those are two separate things. Those are two different things that are happening. We begin to see the conditionality of all of life, meaning to say that a meditator realizes that everything that arises has causes and conditions. It's not arising because of we're, that we're ordering it to, or that someone outside of us is ordering it to, some kind of higher self or whatever, is ordering all of this experience to happen. That experience is happening because of many causes and conditions. And sometimes one can see those causes and conditions, but a lot of them can be unknown. Through these understandings, the kind of uh, knowing distinctly the different experiences and the causes and conditions of all of phenomena, of all of life, one begins to realize that nothing permanently really exists in and of itself. That comes upon one's mind and heart as an insight that comes from experience. It's easy to read it and kind of say, oh yeah, I can understand that so. But when it comes from deep within, from that moment-to-moment -moment experience, there's a surety, a deep faith in one's uh, path. This idea that there's a solid self begins to melt. And when the continuity of practice is strong and relentless, the momentum of mindfulness builds strength. It's supported by that moment-to-moment -moment concentration. And the mind and heart are very, very strong. There comes a point in one's practice where one cannot help but be mindful, that uh, mindfulness comes in and of itself. It's called effortless mindfulness. No matter what you do, mindfulness is there. 
You don't have to make an effort to be mindful. It's just there, just seeing things as they are, moment to moment. And when this happens, the mind seems to penetrate the illusion of solidity. It begins to see that there are moments when something arises, it passes away, and there are kind of moments, lulls in between, which we spoke about earlier in the day during the question and answer period, where even in those moments of lulls in between, something is happening and we deepen into that. But we see the the space between thoughts. We begin to see the space between thoughts. Um, we begin to see that even in the, in the physical realm, things aren't solid. In the mental realm, things aren't solid. The compactness, the solidity of the body is seen through. The solidity of what we think of as I in the mind is, begin, is we begin to see through that. There are quickly changing sensations in the body. What happens is that there can be a sensation in the body, possibly painful, and mindfulness will go to that sensation because it's picking it up as an object, and as soon as it gets there, it disappears. It's no longer there, or it's changing very, very quickly. This is part of the path. It's sort of like you try to pinpoint something is uh, we think of our body, and the body is not there. Of course, you know, another sensation arises, and if we're not completely mindful, we start to connect kind of the illusion of solidity again, and we kind of go backwards a little bit. But if we stay with the practice, it keeps seeing the body as illusory. It keeps seeing the body as dissolving. The body is just seen as elements arising and passing away. There's hardness and softness in the body. This is why we ask you when um, bodily sensations occur, can you notice the unique characteristics of those bodily sensations? The hardness and softness make up, for example, the earth element. We're not saying it earth element, but this is the elemental nature of the body, not me, not mine, not who I am. Just this elemental nature of hardness and softness arising and passing away. The air element, which manifests as like vibration sometimes, like kind of bubbles going upwardly or downwardly or sideways. Um, swaying comes in the body. And during moments of time, you're not saying, oh, my body is swaying. It's just swaying. That's why the guidance is to, to ask you to just notice it as swaying. Notice it as swaying being known, moving being known. It's the air element that creates that. Not you, not yours, not who you are, not anything outside of you. There are conditions, but no self kind of deeming that so. The fire element is temperature of heat and warmth and the absence of it, so coolness and coldness. So the guidance is to see that happening in the arising and passing away of what is called body. And the water element this is experienced as heaviness sometimes. It's also the element that binds all of the other elements together. So all of this is seen in its changing manifestation in the body. The body can seem so porous and cloud-like at times. And then what about the mind in all of its infinite changing manifestations? We hear, you might have heard the term empty phenomena rolling on. So one begins to see that. When I say one, I mean the mind begins to see that. It's so ephemeral, this mind, what we call mind, made up of many 
countless experiences, so ephemeral and yet so powerful. Everything that makes up this body-mind continuum is seen as unceasingly arising, unceasingly changing, unceasingly passing away. This is the trajectory of Vipassana practice. This is where that deep knowledge, that deep insight comes from. So we're not guiding you to go through this just because we want to make you suffer. (laughs) You do, of course, and we have, of course. I mean, when we report these things um, to our teachers, they're so happy that we're experiencing this, that we're suffering. Mm because this is the, the place where insight arises. It's not through just hanging out in bliss. Attachments develop there. But really by seeing through the illusion of, of self, the illusion of solidity, the illusion of permanence, the illusion of that there can be some everlasting satisfaction somewhere, chasing after rainbows. So during this time, insight into impermanence, into anicca, begins to deepen. This is one of the first insights that arises. For many people, but not for all, sometimes some people have more insight into not-self, or sometimes into dukkha, or unsatisfactoriness. Steve spoke about that last night. In the insight into anicca, even if we were previously able, or mindfulness was previously able to connect and sustain with any whatever the present phenomena is of that moment, during this time of deepening insight into anicca, the mind cannot stay on anything. The mind is so clear that it begins to see more deeply. It begins to see how swiftly passing away everything is. Many things arise and pass away very, very quickly. They're seen either in its course of just arising at different points in the practice, during the moment of arising, or during the moment of changing, or in a very um, advanced stage, it's it's seen as vanishing, everything vanishing, vanishing, vanishing. (coughs) And a teacher knows when people are thinking this but not really experiencing it because of what happens before and after those times. So it's it's not that one can just say these things or read kind of like the progress of insight and then, um, you know, think that it's happening (laughs) because a teacher knows somebody who's experienced it will know it. So one can't stay on anything for even a moment. Everything is fading away, transient, vaporizing. There's this unstable nature. One begins to see the instability of all phenomena. And this is a place where people can feel that I am unstable. You know, this is a a great instability in, in me. I'm not stable, but really one is seeing the instability of all phenomena, that it's dissolving all the time. We have a friend, a yogi friend, that was experiencing this in a very deep way, and she was told by her therapist that she needed therapy. (laughs) But she had enough sense to keep practicing. She actually went to Burma and became a nun for about a year. And then she developed very, very deep um, levels of insight. So whatever the mindfulness lands on, the body, sensations in the body, the mind, all the experiences of the mind, perception, feelings, intentions, consciousness itself is seen as arising and passing away. When one sees this, one can't be fooled. One can't be fooled by the thought that it's consciousness. That's what I am. 
It's knowing that's what I am, that's what I'm resting in. One cannot be fooled by that because even consciousness, even knowing is arising and passing away. Even mindfulness is arising and passing away. One cannot be fooled. So nothing is stable. And eventually, when the mind develops equanimity, a deep equanimity, there is a letting go that takes place, a letting go of the uh, perception or the idea of permanence, a deep letting go of the idea of self, a deep letting go of the idea that there can be some permanent, lasting satisfaction anywhere. This is a great liberation. One begins to see life more clearly and live life in alignment with that understanding. It's not the Buddha's understanding. It's our own, meaning to say, this heart and mind understands it. So the wrong view of permanence is abandoned, the wrong view of self is abandoned, and the wrong view of satisfaction, enduring satisfaction, is abandoned. Dukkha, which Steve spoke about last night, becomes an insight knowledge through anicca, through impermanence, because one sees that if you can't, if, if the mind or experience can't hold on to anything, where can there be any lasting satisfaction anywhere? Everything is continuously and unceasingly changing. Actually, because of that, one develops a great deal of compassion. One sees that this is not just happening within this body and mind, but this is happening for all beings. So one has more compassion for that in life. It comes out of this deep insight. So also from a basis of the insight into impermanence or anicca comes the insight knowledge into anatta, the not-self characteristic of existence. This is from the Sutta, the great advice to Rahula. Rahula was the son of the Buddha. And he said to his son, Rahula, develop meditation on the perception of impermanence. For when you develop meditation on the perception of impermanence, the conceit I am will be abandoned. This is insight into the anatta characteristic. It comes organically from understanding uh, the characteristic of anicca, or impermanence. Nothing solid in here or out there forms a sense of self. Nothing solid in connection with anything in here or out there forms a sense of self. It's not that we're trying to get rid of self, we're understanding that there was not a self to begin with. There is, of course, a sense of self that we need to have in this relative plane of existence in order to live and cooperate with each other and be with each other. That's different. I want to read to you, this is from Trungpa Rinpoche, very creative uh, teacher in the Tibetan tradition. And he talked about this conditionality of all of life, about anatta, or not-self, in this piece. He says, the experience of oneself relating to other things is actually a momentary discrimination, a fleeting thought. If we generate these fleeting thoughts fast enough, 
we can create the illusion of continuity and solidity. It's like watching a movie. The individual film frames are played so quickly, they generate the illusion of continued movement. So we build up an idea, a preconception, that self and other are solid and continuous. And once we have this idea, we manipulate our thoughts to confirm it. And we are afraid of contrary evidence. It is the fear of exposing this or the denial of impermanence that imprisons us. It is only by acknowledging impermanence that there is a possibility of appreciating life as a creative process. So wisdom sees these compounded things as they really are, all of life as impermanent, dukkha or unsatisfactory. It sees the anatta characteristic, the not-self characteristic in all of life. And so we're no longer under the spell of ignorance. Ignorance has actually um, two levels of meaning. Ignorance is ignoring the truth, or sometimes it's talked about as not seeing the truth as it really is. There's some uh, sometimes kind of a, a resistance to opening to understanding dukkha, to understanding anatta, to understanding impermanence or anicca. And that's kind of ignoring it, not willing to open to it. But there's also delusion. Delusion is getting it wrong, seeing, but kind of overlaying a concept of what you think it should be onto that experience. I like Mark Twain's uh, description. He didn't know he was making this description, but this is the description of delusion. It ain't what you don't know that gets you in trouble but it's what you do know that ain't so. This is delusion. <laughs> you think there's a self. You want to do everything you can to manipulate life around that idea, and it ain't so. The Buddha said to a group of monks, Form is impermanent, feeling is impermanent, perception is impermanent, volitional formations are impermanent, consciousness is impermanent. What is impermanent is suffering, unsatisfactory. What is unsatisfactory or suffering and impermanent is uncontrollable, not self. There is the liberating realization during this, these insights that there is nothing at all to cling to. I mean, of course, we manage our lives. We do it on that level. There's nothing that we avoid doing there. But on a deeper level, we understand that there's nothing to cling to. There's really nothing worth clinging to, worth being attached to. It doesn't mean we stop living. People think that but it just means that we stop being attached to things that lead to nowhere, that don't give us uh, an ongoing, deepening sense of liberation. So there's this deep letting go, and there's a direction towards greater freedom that is born in the mind and heart. It's inevitable, it's said at this point, when it reaches kind of a very strong place of equanimity, it's inevitable. They say when this point in practice is reached, this very deep equanimity, that one is bound to be free. In a short, short period of time, maybe that lifetime, the next lifetime, I can't remember what the timing is, but there's an inevitability to that. And there's a strong momentum of inclining the mind towards the unconditioned, a word that is synonymously used with Nibbana, 
the goal of the holy life, the eventual goal of the holy life. Nibbana means it's extinguishing the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. It's a cooling out. It's an experience when the mind is, and heart is completely free of all obscurations, able to see life from a place of deep wisdom. So this is where our practice is going. It is, this Nibbana, an ineffable experience. Because it's really a non-experience, you can't put it in the realm of experience. It's the cessation of all conditioned experience. It's beyond the words, beyond description. But the Buddha did give some words to it, finally, when people asked. And I'd like to read the Buddha's words. This is from the Udana. There is that sphere where there is no earth, no water, no fire or wind. There is no, where there is no sphere of infinity, no sphere of space, of infinity, of consciousness, of nothingness, or even of neither perception nor non-perception. There is neither this world nor the other world, neither moon nor sun. This fear I call neither a coming nor going, nor a staying still, neither dying nor a reappearance. It has no basis, no foundation, no support. This, just this, is the end of dukkha. And it may seem like a koan to us, but what it means to most people is that it's really beyond our reckoning. And it's important to keep open to that there might be something beyond what we can imagine is the end of suffering. Because if we have some strict or stiff idea, that's what we'll live in. We won't go beyond. He also says, there is the unborn, the uncreated, the unconditioned, the unformed. If there were not, there would be no escape, discerned from that which is born, created, conditioned, and formed. But since there is the unborn, uncreated, unconditioned, and unformed, escape is therefore discerned from that which is born created, conditioned, formed. I will teach you the far shore, the subtle, the difficult to see, the undisintegrating, the unmanifest, the unproliferated, the peaceful, the deathless, the sublime, the secure, the discretion of craving, the amazing, the island, the shelter, the refuge. Nibbana. These are the words of the Buddha, the realization of our highest potential as human beings, the sure heart's release, the potential that exists in every one of us. It is our birthright. If you open to the possibility, your life will incline in that direction even though it seems too far away or impossible to achieve. It may seem uncomprehensible, but if we can just have faith in that we can open to something that we don't know now, the mind will incline there, the heart will incline there. So I'd like to end with this from Kalu Rinpoche, one of my favorite um, reminders that pretty much puts everything together. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When we understand this, we see that we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. 
that is all. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.